Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. President Biden delivers his State of the Union before Congress, receives a hostile reaction from Republican lawmakers. We'll look at what Biden said about taxing the rich, the climate crisis, China-Ukraine, militarizing the border, and the police killing of Tyree Nichols. Police officers or police departments violate the public trust. They must be held accountable. We'll host a roundtable discussion with Rashad Robinson of Color of Change, the economist Dean Baker, former Bernie Sanders advisor Matt Duss, and newly elected Democratic Congress member Delia Ramirez of Illinois, who gave the Working Family Party's response to the State of the Union. What I want to say to President Biden and all my fellow Democrats in Congress is that we have two jobs. We must stand up to the extremism of the MAGA Republicans And we have to show working people what Democrats will deliver for working families if they put us back in control. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Rescue operations continued in Turkey and Syria three days after a 7.8 magnitude earthquake jolted the two countries in the region's most powerful quake in over eight decades, followed by another. Harrowing scenes have emerged from the affected areas as bodies are pulled from the wreckage and the death toll surpasses 11,000. In Turkey's border province of Hatay, devastated residents say help took too long to arrive as they take stock of the catastrophe. We went to the city center. The situation is worse than here. It is worse. It is almost like a ghost city. We went back at least 50 years in time. Our lives are ruined. Our children are devastated. Our lives are lost. We lost our children, our parents. At least two to three people died from each home. Some miraculous survivals are also being reported in Syria. A baby born in the rubble was pulled to safety by her uncle and made it to a nearby hospital. Her mother did not survive. Displaced survivors around Aleppo say they face freezing conditions amid shortages of heating oil, and some are too scared to remain indoors for fear of more tremors. There have been over 100 aftershocks. To be honest, this is harder than war. At war, a strike and it passes. Here, we don't know when it ends. We are terrified, but it's all in God's hands. 
Rescue efforts in Syria have been complicated by damage and displacement from 12 years of war and harsh sanctions. The Syrian Arab Red Crescent called on the European Union Tuesday to lift its sanctions to facilitate humanitarian aid, reaching those who need it in government-controlled areas. The U.S. also maintains sanctions on the government of Bashar al-Assad. President Joe Biden delivered his second State of the Union Tuesday night, his first to a divided Congress over Repub after Republicans took the House in the midterms. Biden touted his infrastructure le legislation, backed an assault weapons ban, the codification of abortion rights and taxing the ultra-rich in corporations. He also addressed racism and police violence, calling on Congress to support police reform. Republicans repeatedly heckled Biden throughout his address, one of the more raucous moments came when Biden accused Republicans of pushing to cut Medicare and Social Security. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. <laughs> Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad. The lawmaker yelling liar at President Biden is far-right Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene. Members of the Congressional Black Caucus and other Democrats wore pins with the number 1870 on them. That was the year when a black man named Henry Truman was shot dead by a white Philadelphia police officer. It's the first known instance of a police officer killing a free black person in the United States. After headlines, we'll spend the hour on the State of the Union. Among the notable guests at the State of the Union were Tyree Nichols' parents, who accompanied First Lady Jill Biden. This comes as seven more Memphis police officers are under investigation following the deadly beating of the 29-year-old black father last month. City Attorney Jennifer Sink said Tuesday the officers who have not been identified will likely be notified of charges by next week. Meanwhile, the city of Memphis has asked the Justice Department to conduct a review of its police, which would include an assessment of special units and its policies on use of force. In the wake of Tyree Nichols' killing, Memphis disbanded the Scorpion police unit that the five ex-officers who beat Nichols belong to. They have all been charged with second-degree murder. New documents reveal Tuesday one of the officers, Demetrius Haley, took and shared a photo of Nichols as he sat propped against a police car, nearly unconscious, covered in blood and handcuffed. The officer sent the photo to at least five people, including an acquaintance outside the police department. After the beating, the officers also shouted profanities at Nichols and were seen laughing and bragging with each other. A federal lawsuit filed Tuesday accuses the same five officers of assaulting another young black man just three days before their encounter with Nichols. 22-year-old Monterius Harris says the officers punched, stopped and dragged him across concrete as they arrested him on January 4th. In Missouri, Leonard Raheem Taylor was executed Tuesday by lethal injection after Governor Mike Parson refused to grant him clemency or a stay, despite calls from the Innocence Project, the NAACP and others. 58-year-old Taylor had always maintained his innocence, asserting he was nearly 2,000 miles away at the time of the quadruple murder of his then-girlfriend and her children in 2004. The Innocence Project also raised concerns about the competence of the lawyer who represented him at trial. In a final statement, Taylor wrote, quote, 
Muslims don't die. We live eternally in the hearts of our family and friends. Taylor is the third person to be executed in Missouri since November, the fifth person to be executed in the United States this year. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers have killed another Palestinian teenager in the city of Nablus. 17-year-old Hamza al-Ashkar was fatally shot in the face as Israeli forces conducted raids and dozens of arrests across the West Bank Tuesday. This is al-Ashkar's grandmother. My sweetheart, he's still 17 years old. He wanted to work because his father is not financially stable. God bless him. He wanted to work, but he didn't. He died. He couldn't work. My sweetheart, he died. May he rest in peace. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Britain on a rare trip abroad where he's meeting with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and King Charles. Zelensky will also address the U.K. parliament. Britain, which announced new sanctions against Russia today, has provided military equipment and training to Ukraine in its efforts to counter Russia's invasion. Zelensky's visit comes as Russia seems poised to launch a major offensive in the east and as the war approaches its one-year mark. Meanwhile, President Biden's expected to travel to Poland for the February 24th anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In Peru, at least 15 people are dead and several injured after heavy rains triggered massive mudslides and floods in the southern region of Arequipa. The landslide came out of nowhere and we got desperate. We couldn't even take blankets, anything. We desperately left with our children and shouting. Authorities said the death toll could rise in the coming days. Doctors, nurses and army helicopters transporting food, water and other aid have been deployed to the devastated areas as search and rescue efforts continue. Two more Greenpeace activists have joined a group of four climate defenders who have been on board a massive shell vessel in the English Channel since last week to demand Shell stop drilling for oil and start paying reparations for its role in the climate catastrophe. Shell, which last week reported a record-shattering $40 billion in 2022 profits, has threatened Greenpeace with legal action that could result in two years in jail for the peaceful protesters. Meanwhile, BP, which also recently announced record annual profits, said Tuesday it would increase oil and gas drilling, reversing a previous pledge to cut down fossil fuel production by 40 percent below 2019 levels. BP now expects to reduce its output by just 25 percent. Calls for a windfall tax have been growing as the major oil and gas companies report tens of billions of dollars in profits amidst a surge in oil prices last year, spurred by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A sweeping new study by conservation research group NatureServe finds 40 percent of animals and 34 percent of plants in the U.S. are at risk of extinction, and 41 percent of ecosystems are facing collapse. Researchers say passing legislation to protect land and biodiversity is key unless some of the greatest threats to wildlife as habitat degradation and land conversion, invasive species, damming and polluting of rivers, and climate change. This is Sean O'Brien, president of NatureServe. Nature is also incredibly complex, and we don't always know what the sort of the keystone species is, as sometimes people call them. So when you have a habitat, and species start going extinct or becoming smaller in number, eventually that can cause the collapse of that habitat type. 
Here in New York City, Yusuf Salam, one of the exonerated Central Park Five, announced he's running for a city council seat in Harlem. Salam was one of five black and Latino teenagers wrongfully convicted of the 1989 beating and rape of a white woman. He spent seven years in prison. Salam said he will overhaul New York City's criminal justice system, end mass incarceration, and help bring about police reform. His candidacy challenges progressive incumbent Kristen Richardson Jordan, a Democratic Socialist, who's called for free public transportation, prison abolition, and cuts to the NYPD budget. She's also fought for affordable housing and against gentrification in Harlem. And Australia's medical regulators have approved the use of MDMA and psilocybin, better known as magic mushrooms and ecstasy, to treat depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. The Therapeutic Goods Administration said it found, quote, sufficient evidence for potential benefits in certain patients. Psychiatrists would be able to prescribe the substances only after a thorough diagnosis, and their use would be restricted to clinical trials for now. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Joe Biden delivered his second State of the Union Tuesday night before a divided Congress. Biden touted his infrastructure legislation, backed an assault weapons ban, the codification of abortion rights, and taxing the ultra-rich and corporations. Republicans repeatedly heckled Biden. At one point, Congress member Marjorie Taylor Greene shouted, liar, as Biden criticized proposals by some Republicans to cut Social Security and Medicare. We spend the hour airing expert excerpts and getting response. We begin with President Biden's comments about the police killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee. Biden spoke exactly a month after Nichols was brutally beaten by officers January 7th. He died three days later in the hospital. Five of the officers have been fired and charged with murder. On Tuesday night, Tyree Nichols' parents sat with First Lady Dr. Jill Biden in the House Gallery during the State of the Union. This is President Biden. Public safety depends on public trust, as all of us know. But too often that trust is violated. Join us tonight are the parents of Tyree Nichols. Welcome. We had to bury Tyree last week. As many of you personally know, there's no words to describe the heartache or grief of losing a child. But imagine, imagine if you lost that child at the hands of the law. Imagine having to worry whether your son or daughter came home from walking down the street, or playing in the park, or just driving a car. Most of us in here have never had to have the talk, the talk that brown and black parents have had to have with their children. Bo, Hunter, Ashley, my children. I never had to have to talk with them. I never had to tell them if a police officer pulls you over, turn your interior lights on right away. Don't reach for your license. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. Imagine having to worry like that every single time your kid got in a car. Here's what Tyree's mother shared with me when I spoke to her. When I asked her how she finds the courage to carry on and speak out. With the faith of God, she said her son was, quote, a beautiful soul and something good will come of this. 
I know most cops and their families are good, decent, honorable people, the vast majority. But they risk. And they risk their lives every time they put that shield on. But what happened to Tyree in Memphis happens too often. We have to do better. Give law enforcement the real training they need. Hold them to higher standards. Help them succeed in keeping us safe. We also need more first responders and professionals to address the growing mental health substance abuse challenges. More resources to reduce violent crime and gun crime. More community intervention programs. More investment in housing, education, and job training. All this can help prevent violence in the first place. When police officers or police departments violate the public trust, they must be held accountable. With the support... With the support of the families of victims, civil rights groups, and law enforcement, I signed an executive order for all federal officers banning chokeholds, restricting no-knock warrants, and other key elements of the George Floyd Act. Let's commit ourselves to make the words of Tyler's mom true. Something good must come from this. Something good. That was President Biden delivering a State of the Union Tuesday night. Members of the Congressional Black Caucus and other Democrats wore pins with a date 1870 on them. That was the year a black man named Henry Truman was shot dead by a white Philadelphia police officer, the first known instance of a police officer killing a free black person in the United States. We're joined now in Washington, D.C., by our first guest, Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change. Your response to the State of the Union Union and particularly focus on this issue. Interestingly, um, President Biden uh, did not refer to the George Floyd uh, police reform bill, which many are talking about, including its sponsors like um, Senator Cory Booker. There, it seems that it's taken off the table at this point. Well, I think that that's really important, Amy, because The reason why he didn't talk about the George Floyd Policing Act is because while there was a room full of Republicans that actually stood up for Tyree Nichols' family, they're unwilling to actually do anything structural to hold police accountable. And the Republican representatives don't sit alone, right? They are supported by a whole network of enablers, uh, corporations who seem outraged when um, when these police killings happen, um, yet continue to support not just these representatives, but support police foundations that are sort of right now in the process of building um, sites like cops city in Atlanta, which will displace, you know, tons of black folks in that community while also creating another sort of home for sort of training and unaccountable training and violent training of police officers. So I think it was incredibly important that the president sort of spoke to the emotional sort of uh, situation we are in. But we have to go the extra mile of helping the public understand why change hasn't happened, who is standing in the way of change, because we constantly lose 
at the uh, back rooms, in the back rooms, because we don't have the right people lined up at the front door, not just the front door of Congress, but the front door of all the people that enable Congress to um, be stagnant, to um, uh, gaslight us, and to prevent the sort of opportunities for real structure reform and accountability. Because at the end of the day, Executive orders are important, but they are so limited. They don't impact what actually happens in local communities, and they don't have the level of a power that legislation will have. I also think it was really important that he talked about a vision for public safety, which really sort of in many ways um, connected and aligned with something that Color of Change has put out, which is on our website. Our vision for public safety, which we've worked on with Vera Institute and Brookings and others, which really does talk about what do we do um, outside of policing? How do we invest in communities to not just hold police accountable, but to unlock the full potential of communities? And that does include the type of investments in mental health and education and violent prevention, all of the things that actually make communities safe and will actually lift us up. So I think we have to continue to sort of recognize that over the next two years, we're not going to get the type of policing reform we need at the federal level. But we have to begin telling a powerful story about why and who is holding us back and and focusing our energy strategically at those forces. Now, of course, uh, what's being said now is because it's a divided, you know, House and Senate. But uh, the last two years were both um, run by run by Democrats. But I want to go back to President Biden speaking last night. There's one reason why we've been able to do all of these things. Our democracy itself. It's the most fundamental thing of all. With democracy. Everything's possible. Without it, nothing is. The last few years, our democracy has been threatened and attacked, put at risk, put to the test in this very room on January the 6th. And then just a few months ago, an unhinged big lie assailed and unleashed a political violence, the home of the then Speaker of the House of Representatives, using the very same language the insurrectionists used as they stalked these halls and chanted on January 6th. Here tonight in this chamber is a man who bears the scars of that brutal attack, but is as tough and as strong and as resilient as they get. My friend Paul Pelosi, Paul Stanley. should have never happened. We must all speak out. There's no place for political violence in America. We have to protect the right to vote, not suppress the fat fundamental right. Honor the results of our elections, not subvert the will of the people. We have to uphold the rule of law and restore trust in our institutions of democracy. And we must give hate and extremism in any form no safe harbor. So... That's President Biden uh, referring to extremism and the man who attacked Paul Pelosi, the former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. Um, Rashad Robinson, we're speaking just before this week. Jim Jordan, who's now head of the House Judiciary Committee, is going to have a um, hearing uh, that's called the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, which is really going after agencies that are going 
after what is being called the greatest threat um, inside the United States to national security, and that is right-wing domestic extremism. Can you talk about this? Yeah. I mean, this is a result of the, all the ways in which uh, social media platforms have been able to amplify, profit off of, um, encourage, and, and sort of in so many ways create a whole business model around um, inciting these type of ideas and as a result um, mobilizing uh, factions of our society around lies. Um, and, and, and so, yes, we must stop out hate. Yes, we may we must deal with violence, but how do we do it? And we actually have to hold big tech accountable. It was good to hear President Biden talk about big tech accountability because I think that that's incredibly important. I think where we actually need to sort of uh, get our hands around the problem is what are the set of legislations that actually need to be passed? And how do we combat sort of all the ways in which the big platforms are standing in the way of that? Jim Jordan wouldn't be able to sort of have the sort of entree and visibility and engagement around what he's doing if he wasn't supported by a whole ecosystem of platforms which are incentivized to amplify these lies, to encourage these lies, to radicalize people around um, this information, which leads people to take all sorts of um, actions um, that we have saw on January 6th, that we saw with Paul Pelosi, that we see sort of in communities. We saw in Buffalo. Um, we saw in Texas. We've seen time and time again. And so until we actually deal with these self-regulated platforms, which are essentially unregulated platforms, we will continue to be here. Our cars are not safe because of the benevolence of the car industry. Federal government has to put in some accountability. Let's go back to President Biden talking about big tech. We must finally hold social media companies accountable for experimenting or doing running children for profit. It's time to pass bipartisan legislation to stop big tech from collecting personal data on our kids and teenagers online. Ban targeted advertising to children and impose stricter limits on the personal data that companies collect on all of us. Rashad Robinson, you've been dealing with these tech companies for a long time now. The problem that we're facing with how the platforms attack, um, uh, engage, um, focus on our young people is it, you know, is an incredibly important issue to focus on, but it's just one piece of the larger problem and one piece of the sort of outsized power. And we have to make sure that when we deal with the sort of legislation and policy that will hopefully raise the floor on what's acceptable from these platforms, we will sort of not just focus on um, young people, but we will focus on sort of all of the ways in which communities have been targeted, attacked and exploited by these platforms. Um, you know, when when we've gone toe to toe with these platforms, what we've <laughs> time and time again learned is that even when they sort of commit to changes, they end up not being incentivized five, six months later because um, there are no rules and there are no regulations. So the growth and profit will always outweigh safety, integrity, and security. And so we've released something called the Black Tech Agenda, which is a six-part platform that sort of outlines a whole set of policies um, that specifically deal with all of the ways in which these platforms target and attack people that have always been targeted attacked. Dealing with the information environment, dealing with sort of the abuse of big tech, 
um, is not a hard thing if we actually focus on the communities that have been traditionally targeted and attacked. If we focus on those folks that have been targeted and attacked and build the policies and issue areas that will help them, we will sort of raise the floor for everyone in the process. And that is why racial justice is going to be so incredibly important, because once again, we are facing outsized forces on the other side, and we are facing moneyed forces on the other side. And Congress will continue to remain stagnant and do nothing um, unless they are forced to do it and unless they feel like there's consequences and that there are rewards. And so I think it was important that the president continues to talk about it. He's put more people in positions of power inside of his administration that care about this, some of the smartest and best people. He should be commended for that. Um, and now we have to actually do the work to get legislation across the line while we are in this moment, because we are running out of time. Rashad Robinson, I want to thank you very much for being with us, President of the Color of Change Act. And I just want to be clear on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. While President Biden did refer to it, he just referred to it in terms of um, executive orders that he had put forward that took elements of it. Um, when we come back, we'll continue our roundtable discussion with the economist Dean Baker, former Bernie Sanders advisor. Ukrainian-American Matt Duss and newly elected Democratic Congress member Delia Ramirez, who gave the Working Families Party's response to the State of the Union. Stay with us. Back in 30 seconds. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Yes, this is Democracy Now!, um Let's turn now to the issue of foreign policy um, as we continue to look at President Biden's State of the Union. While most of the speech focused on domestic policy, Biden also spoke about China. Before I came to office, the story was about how the People's Republic of China was increasing its power and America was failing in the world. Not anymore. We made clear, and I made clear in my personal conversations, which have been many, with President Xi, that we seek competition, not conflict. But I will make no apologies that we're investing in, to make America stronger. Investing in American innovation and industries will define the future that China intends to be dominated. Investing in our alliances and working with our allies to protect advanced technologies so they will not be used against us, modernizing our military to safeguard stability and determine, to, to deter aggression. Today, we're in the strongest position in decades to compete with China or anyone else in the world, anyone else in the world. I'm committed to work with China where we can advance American interests and benefit the world, but make no mistake about it. As we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country, and we did. Let's be clear. Winning the competition should unite all of us. We face serious challenges across the world. But in the past two years, democracies have become stronger, not weaker. 
Autocracy has grown weaker, not stronger. For more, we're joined in Washington, D.C. by Matt Duss, visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, former foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders. His recent co-authored piece in The New Republic is headlined, A Better Biden Doctrine. Your response to President Biden's State of the Union, and most importantly, the foreign policy of the United States right now, Matt. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. I mean, I think the, you know, what's notable from, from the speech, uh, the foreign policy section, was how little the president actually talked about foreign policy last night. This was a speech, I think, that sounded a number of progressive left themes um, with regard to corporate power, with regard to uh, protecting uh, Social Security, Medicare, creating jobs, investing in infrastructure, going after big pharma. Um, but the, the, the foreign policy section was very, very thin. I think he talked about China. He talked about Russia and Ukraine. He talked about climate change um, and, and a few broader themes about, you know, supporting democracy around the world. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the the tiny amount of speaking about foreign policy he did last night, I think, is reflective of the administration's broader approach to foreign policy, which is they want to spend as little time talking and arguing about foreign policy uh, as necessary. Um, and I think that perhaps makes some political sense. There are other things on the minds of the American people, but there are, in fact, you know, really important issues around the world that we need to deal with and we need to debate. Um, and, I, you know, and, and the president needs to engage on these issues more than we saw last night, I think. He talked about um, competition, not uh, confrontation with China. Uh, but, uh, in fact, you have this now... Uh, more U.S. military bases in the Philippines, a kind of encircling of China. Can you talk about what should be Chinese policy and what it is right now, with Blinken canceling his visit to Beijing? Some said at times like this of increased tension, that's exactly when a summit should mm. be held. Yeah, right. In my view, and I, and I said this, I think the decision to cancel uh, the Secretary of State's trip was a mistake. I think it fed into the overreaction around the spy balloon, um, which the president did not mention last night. He, of course, mentioned China. He did not, did not mention um, the balloon, despite um, Washington having spent the previous few days freaking out about it. Um, you know, I think the administration's response to the balloon was actually quite correct, um, measured and, and firm, but not overreacting. Uh, but as I said, I do think the decision to cancel the trip um, was the wrong one, because as you noted, this is, you know, these are precisely the moments when, when we should uh, be talking, when the U.S. and China uh, should be talking. Um, the president, yes, said, you know, we should, you know, competition with China is something that should unify us. And um, this is concerning because, yes, we there are elements of China's policy that are a challenge to the United States that are of great concern, both internally and externally. There's no question about that. But I do think this idea of trying to create political unity around competition or confrontation with China or any external threat um, has a very bad history. We only need to look at the past 20 years of the U.S. global war on terror uh, to see that efforts to build political consensus around external threats have enormously devastating consequences, not only for our policy, but for our politics. Um, and on that, I would also note something the president also didn't talk about, which, which is the global war on terror, which is ongoing. Uh, despite the president's claim at the United Nations in 2021 that um, after the withdrawal from Afghanistan that the United States is no longer at war, that is untrue. 
There are still thousands of U.S. troops deployed in countries around the world under the under the uh, authorization that was passed immediately in the wake of the September 11th attacks. We have troops increasingly engaged in, in Africa and in Somalia and Kenya and Niger and other countries. Um, and for the president not to acknowledge that um, is simply to, I, I think, to, you know, to play a role in hiding these conflicts and this ongoing war on terror from the American people. And I think that is not appropriate in a democracy. We need to acknowledge um, that this war is still very much ongoing. I want to go to part of President Biden's uh, State of the Union where he talked about Ukraine. Putin's invasion has been a test for the ages. Test for America, a test for the world. Would we stand for the most basic of principles? Would we stand for sovereignty? We stand for the right of people to live free of tyranny? Would we stand for the defense of democracy? For such defense matters to us because it keeps peace and prevents open season on would be aggressors and threatens our prosperity. One year later, we know the answer. Yes, we would, and we did. We did. President Biden will be in Poland on February 24th. Unclear if he would go over to Ukraine or if Zelensky would then join him in Poland, of course, right next door to Ukraine. Um, and Zelensky today is in a second international trip. He's in the UK and he'll be addressing the parliament, of course, calling for more weapons. Matt Duss, your assessment of U.S. policy when it comes to Ukraine. Uh, I, I think actually the president's, you know, version of it there it tracks with the facts. I think, you know, I think the administration, as my colleague Stephen and I wrote in the piece that you referenced, um, the way the president has helped manage alliances and partnerships in, in response to Russia's invasion of, of last February, um, I think has been impressive. Um, I think it shows a, a way of, of, of practicing U.S. leadership that, that, that forges consensus and then mobilizes that consensus. Um, I mean, the war uh, obviously is devastating. It is ongoing. Um, we would like to see the war end as soon as possible. But I think being realistic about, you know, when that is possible um, is part of the challenge we face right now. I think Putin has given no evidence whatsoever that he's interested in a workable resolution of this conflict. I think he and the Russians and the Ukrainians at this point both seem to believe that they can continue to achieve their goals uh, through military means. Um, so for the time being, I think the, the administration's theory of the case is sound, which is that they'll continue to support Ukraine's defense um, to create the best possible moment or the best possible environment for negotiations when that becomes possible. Do you see parallels to the lead up to the invasion? I mean, the lead up to the invasion of Iran, uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Um, you had, you know, the U.S. Uh, with NATO um, pushing NATO to be larger. And then with China, uh, hmm. are you seeing a parallel situation where they are increasing their U.S. military bases? Biden is doing this and pushing China. No, I think we have, again, I think those are all very fair points. We need to understand, you know, China's perspective. We also need to understand the perspective of China's neighbors. 
um, many of whom are close partners and allies of the United States and who are very concerned. They are democratic countries um, who have their own concerns um, with, with, with China's policies. These are independent actors in their own right. Um, so we, we, we need to not just treat this as a U.S.-China uh, uh, situation in the same way we should not treat the Ukraine war as just a U.S.-Russia situation. Uh, that said, I think the president sounded the right notes on China, which is that, at least with regard to seeking a cooperation where we can and not characterizing this relationship solely as conflict. Although I do, I do grant that some of the, the steps that the United States has been taking, and again, Stephen and I referenced this in our piece, is putting the United States on a, you know, a, a a really troubling track that we we could very likely lead to future conflict. We want to thank you, Matt, for joining us. Matt Duss, visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, former foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders. We'll link to your new piece that you wrote with Stephen Wertheim, A Better Biden Doctrine, uh, at democracynow.org. When we come back, we'll be joined by economist Dean Baker and new Congress member Delia Ramirez, who gave the working families response to State of the Union. Stay with us. Bourgeois now by McCarthy, not the House Speaker, but this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we go back to President Biden, State of the Union, where he calls for Congress to pass comprehensive immigration reform. And let's also come together on immigration, make it a bipartisan issue once again. We know we now have a record number of personnel working to secure the border arresting 8,000 human smugglers, seizing over 23,000 pounds of fentanyl in just the last several months. We've launched a new border plan last month. Unlawful migration from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela has come down 97% as a consequence of that. But American border problems won't be fixed until Congress acts. If we don't pass my comprehensive immigration reform, at least pass my plan to provide the equipment and officers to secure the border. And a pathway to citizenship for dreamers, those on temporary status, farm workers, essential workers. 
We're joined now by Democratic Congress member Delia Ramirez, the first Latina to be elected to Congress to represent Illinois. She delivered the Working Families Party's progressive response to Biden's State of the Union. She's the daughter of Guatemalan immigrants, the wife of a DACA recipient. She previously served in the Illinois State House after being elected in 2018, is a longtime community organizer joining us now from the Cannon Rotunda on Capitol Hill. Uh, Congress member Ramirez, we last spoke to you as Congress member elect. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, you just heard President Biden, um, and you, of course, you were right there um, in the House last night as he spoke. Uh, what he's saying is even if you don't get to other parts, though we want you to support comprehensive immigration reform, at least essentially support militarization of the border. Your response to that, Congress member Ramirez? I think. Well, first of all, I appreciate what he said after, right, which he said, I want to make sure that we finally create a pathway for dreamers and that we also do the same for those that have been here, migrant workers, essential workers. The reality is that the immigrant community, millions are essential workers. And so if we go by that definition, then the response is we are going to provide worker permits for the 12 million people who live in this country who are the reason our unemployment rate has gone down as much as it has. Um, they are going to be the ones that are going to be able to work in those manufacturing companies, provide the supplies, create the supplies that we were going to, we're going to build now in America, as the president said. My problem is the militarizing of the border. My family came here 40 years ago. There are people who are coming in now, not because they chose, I, you know, let me just go ahead and cross the border and nearly die because, you know, it's a, it's a luxury to do that. People are escaping poverty. People are escaping death. There are so many things happening. And so to talk about securing the border without executive action to do the things that we can do right now, which is truly create a pathway to citizenship, let's start with dreamers. But we have the ability to do that now. And we can't begin to create a tension where we help and uplift one immigrant community at the expense of the other. And Congressmember Ramirez, um, you talked about and often talk about your mother being pregnant with you as she crossed the border. Now you have the Republicans in charge of the House, and they're going to be holding hearings on the border, apparently. Um, but you have... President Biden's new immigration plan, where he is effectively expanding the controversial uh, public health restrictions again, that's Title 42, even as they're declaring the pandemic over. Your thoughts about this? I said it last night. I've said it over and over and over. And I think a number of congressional Hispanic members agree with me. We have to end Title 42, not expand it. That is our number one responsibility. Uh, we can't continue to talk about uh, being a country of immigrants, uh, being a country that receives asylum seekers, and increase enforcements that are expanding Title 42. It's unacceptable. During his State of the Union, President Biden urged lawmakers to support raising the debt ceiling. Let's go to what he said. Nearly 25 percent of the entire national debt that took over 200 years to accumulate was added by just one administration alone, the last one. They're the facts. Check it out. Check it out. How did Congress respond to that debt? They did the right thing. They lifted the debt ceiling three times without preconditions or crisis. They paid American bills. 
to prevent an economic disaster in the country. So tonight I'm asking the Congress to follow suit. Let's commit here tonight to the full faith and credit of the United States of America will never, ever be questioned. So my many of some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you anybody who doubts it. Contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if, if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they'd go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look, folks, the idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. Folks. So, folks, as we all apparently agree. Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be stopped. All right. We got unanimity. What our radio listeners can't see that our TV viewers do see is that right behind um, President Biden, of course, in this new McCarthy era, is uh, House Speaker uh, McCarthy, who was also shaking his head as he was talking about Medicare and Social Security being cut. And you had Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, shouting, liar, liar. Um, your response, this is an issue that is very close to your heart, Congressmember Ramirez, to the issue of the debt ceiling and using it as a way to cut Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. Look, I need to applaud the president for what he said last night when he said we're not cutting Social Security or Medicare, not today, not tomorrow, not ever. I stand fully in solidarity with him. The idea that we begin a conversation of negotiation over the things that are keeping people alive and keeping people from living in deep poverty the last few years of their life should be something that would be unimaginable in this country. And yet we have Republicans, maybe not all of them, but a good number of them that want to use it as a negotiating bargain. I'll, I'll give you Social Security, but let's cut SNAP benefits. I'll give you Medicare. We just can't expand it. That kind of negotiation is bizarre to me. Last I checked, poverty doesn't have a color red or blue. People need Social Security in Kentucky. People need Social Security in Illinois. People need Social Security in Oklahoma. And they certainly need it in Georgia. I want to bring Dean Baker into the conversation, senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. His most recent book, Rigged, 
how globalization and rules of the modern economy were structured to make the rich richer. If you can take off from this issue of Social Security and Medicare, as Republicans were shouting liar at President Biden, and then go on to talk about President Biden talking about the billionaire's tax and also tax increasing a tax on people who make $400,000 or more. Yeah, I have to say it was great to hear President Biden stand up in defending Social Security and Medicare. Um, I've been around long enough. I remember uh, President Clinton was not pushing it, but he was willing to consider cuts to Social Security, cuts to Medicare. And same thing with President Obama. And it was just great to see President Biden just stand up there and go, no, we're not we're not cutting it. It's not on the agenda. So that that was a really, really good thing to see and change from prior Democratic administrations. A good one. <laughs> and anyhow, so. Uh, President Biden was he has a lot to boast about. He, of course, spent a lot of time in the speech talking about 12 million jobs, uh, 800,000 manufacturing jobs, lowest unemployment rate in 50 years, lowest black unemployment rate ever. Um, he didn't mention this, but I think an important point, uh, we have a record number of people with disabilities who are now able to work record low unemployment rate for people with disabilities. I assume that's largely because of increased work from home. These are all really, really big deals to millions and millions of people. Home ownership rates risen for blacks, for young people. A lot of good news there. But in terms of, I shouldn't say in terms of policy, like that wasn't policy because that was because of his Recovery Act. But specifically, he's been focused on trying to increase taxes on, on the rich, uh, taxes on corporations, and also reducing uh, the money a drug companies get. And uh, again, he's made some headway here. Um, obviously, he'd like to do more. I'd love to see him do more. But He's had really big breakthroughs. I mean, increasing the funding for the Internal Revenue Service, that's a big deal. I mean, you have a number of the richest people in the country get away with paying no taxes. A lot of it is gaming. It means it's legal. But a lot of it's illegal. And that's straightforward. I mean, we should cut down on the gaming, but that means changing the law. But enforcing the law should be straightforward, should be simple. And he's gotten increased resources for the IRS to do that. And that should be a really big deal. Um, he's trying to get a minimum tax on billionaires. Again, that if you're uh, among the richest people in the country, you should be paying at least 20 percent of your income in taxes. That hardly seems like an outrageous uh, situation. Um, also for corporations, uh, again, trying to have a minimum tax. Corporations pay at least 15 percent of their profits in tax, at least the big profitable ones. These are really, really big deals. And also I should mention something he actually did get in, in the in, in uh, Inflation Reduction Act. He got a tax on stock buybacks, a small one, one percentage point. But that's a big deal. To my view, it's – I'd love to see us have more focus on stock buybacks, dividend payouts, returns to shareholders because those are things we see. So the corporate income tax is currently based on profits. We don't see profits. Corporate accountants tell us what profits are. But if you tax share buybacks, they can't hide those. We see them. And he wants to quadruple, quadruple that from 1% to 4%. And again, great policy. Obviously, the companies have it or they wouldn't be paying it, paying it out to their shareholders. So it's not a question that we're going to be putting them out of business. These are very profitable companies. Profits have been way up. So there's a lot of very good things in his agenda that he hit on last night and be hard to get through this Congress. But he should at least be pushing them. And I'm sure he will. Let's go back to President Biden talking about the climate crisis and taxes. Let's face reality. The climate crisis doesn't care if you're in a red or blue state. It's an existential threat. 
We have an obligation, not to ourselves, but to our children and grandchildren to confront it. I'm proud of how, the, how America at last is stepping up to the challenge. We're still going to need oil and gas for a while. But guess what? No, we do. But there's so much more to do. We've got to finish the job. And we pay for these investments in our future by finally making the wealthiest and biggest corporations begin to pay their fair share. Just begin. Look, I'm a capitalist. I'm a capitalist, but pay your fair share. Delia Ramirez, your response and what can be accomplished in this Republican House? Well, I think it's really interesting that when we talked about reducing taxes for working class families, not a Republican applauds. Uh, When you talk about taxing or a fair share tax for corporations and billionaires, not a Republican applauds. But when you talk about oil and gas, a lot of their corporate donors, they all clap. I really hope that the American people see the hypocrisy uh, that I saw in that in that chamber last night. I applaud the president for what he said. I thought he sounded incredibly progressive when he said that. And there's something that a number of us have been saying for a very, very long time. The idea that you make $80,000 a year and you are being taxed more than a billionaire is unacceptable. It's enraging. That's what I hear at the doors. I hear about property tax and income tax. If I make a little more, I'm actually making less because of how much I'm paying in taxes. That's unacceptable. If you make $6 billion a year and you pay your fair share at 20%, here's the thing, you're still a billionaire with $4 billion. I applaud him. And I think there's a number of things we could be doing through executive action. And that's what I was talking about last night. Look, I don't pretend to assume or believe that somehow we're going to have a miracle and a number, maybe six or seven Republicans are going to come our way. Because I hear them talking behind the chamber. You know, you're right. It's actually a really good piece of legislation. You're right. We shouldn't be voting for that. But when they get into that chamber, they vote that party line, even if they don't agree with it. So I know that we won't have the legislative action that we need in this Congress But we have to do everything in our power through executive action to ensure that we provide the protections, that we provide the resources, that we build the economy with working families at the center of it. And when we do that, when we show people that we find creative ways to protect and support, then the American people will go to the ballot box and remember that in 2024 so we can get the majority we need and no excuses, and pass the legislation we should on climate, on immigration, on housing, on economy, raising the minimum wage, getting to a living wage. And let's show what we can do now. And economist Dean Baker, what you feel can be accomplished in this Republican House. And an incredibly important point that uh, Congressmember Ramirez raised is uh, the pressure that's been brought on Biden uh, to— this is not the Biden you have followed for decades, uh, Dean. 
Yeah, he's clearly moved to the left, which, again, obviously that responds to pressure. I mean, the, the progressive segments of the Democratic Party are far more important today than they were 30 years ago. So that's that's clearly behind his movement. But it, it's a great thing to see. I mean, again, I don't know how much he'll be able to accomplish in this Congress. But I'll just point out you're, you're referring Well, we had the section on his speech from about climate change. We've turned the dial on that. I don't mean to say, you know, obviously climate change is going to continue to be an enormous problem. We're going to suffer enormous hardship chips here and elsewhere in the world, of course. But we've so much changed the picture with his in, his infrastructure bill and particularly the Inflation Reduction Act. You now have companies that are all in on electric cars, massive industries in terms of solar and wind that can't be turned back. So that is really, really huge. Now, obviously, we're going to have to do a lot more. We have to keep the pressure up, but we have to recognize what's been done. We are moving forward with a clean energy transition. That's not stoppable. Well, um, Dean Baker, we want to thank you so much for being with us from Astoria, Oregon, senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, and Congressmember Delia Ramirez, Democrat of Illinois, speaking to us from the Capitol. That does it for our show. Um, Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Gesder, Messiah Reds, Nermeen Shafe, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Afterina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Maria Studio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Honey Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.